Isaiah chapter 3 starts on page 568 of your pew Bible. If you'd like to turn there, we're going to be making our way through both chapter 3 and chapter 4. And if it sounds like a lot, well, it, it is. But if you look at chapter 4, chapter 4 is pretty short. And that's why we're, we're putting these together. Chapter 4 also forms the conclusion to chapter 3. Really, chapter 2, 3, and 4 are a body. They go together. And if you think of it a little bit like a thematic sandwich, the, the bread in the sandwich, the outside, the beginning and the end, is good news. And the middle of the sandwich is, is judgment. Judgment. So we, we had the good news start out last week and then got into the judgment and had to stop there. Today we're going to start with the judgment, but we're going to get to the good news at the back end. And remember then, this is all about the people of Judah and Jerusalem, probably under the kingship of Jotham, although possibly under the time when Ahaz has begun to reign. Jotham is a good king. Ahaz is a bad king. It doesn't matter whether you have good or bad king. It seems that the people are not trusting in Jesus. They're not trusting in God. And they're out on those high places burning incense to false gods. And they're chasing after foreign ideas, foreign gods. And so the judgment here is God saying, since you're no different than the rest of the nations that I drove out before you in order to make a place for you, since you're just the same as them, I'm going to drive you out. And even though Hezekiah will come along as king and publicly repent of all of this and lead to a time of regrowth and regeneration, nonetheless, this pending judgment on Jerusalem does come to pass several generations later as they are taken captivity into Babylon. Now, we need to see this ancient picture as something that reflects in several different ways. In one way, it reflects on every nation that there ever was. It grows and does well when the people are virtuous. It doesn't matter which God they have. If they love their neighbor as themselves, if they have balanced scales in their exchanges, things go well. And then at a certain point, they get big and strong, and they start to think very highly of themselves. They start to cheat, steal, lie. They turn their back on any trust of the divine power, and eventually they must collapse as God pushes their pride into the ground. This is true. This happens not only to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and Israel, but to nations throughout history. And if that sounds like a time you're living in right now, well, I wouldn't be one to disagree with you about such a time. But it is also about, and probably more importantly than anything we can apply to our city, our state, our government, it is also about the church. And when I say the church, I mean the whole church on earth, but I really mean congregations and areas of the church. I guess you could say denominations, but traditions. And this is to say that you have times when people devote themselves to the scripture, they learn to believe what God has said, they live their lives accordingly, and God does send blessings upon them as a people. Now when I say blessings, I don't mean health, wealth, and all the best life you could have right now. I mean peace, love, gentleness, truth. Such things then draw together the community and strengthen the children of the coming generation. But you also have times in history where it's gotten so good and so easy, the pews are full, there's plenty of money in the coffers, and I know the Bible says that, but I don't want to believe it. 
And then piece by piece, that leaven works its way through the entire lump. And eventually, you find people drifting away. And then there's a generation in which God finally says, I'm going to curse you by letting you pretend you're church, but I'm not even there. And one more generation of those churches are gone. And if you haven't noticed, you're living in that time for sure. I don't know about St. Paul. I think we've been in a nice repentant state now for several years. And God has blessed us with stability in our faith and, and a desire to grow. But any trip around the United States, you will easily find church buildings that are no longer church buildings. You'll find places where they become banks and restaurants and all manner of other things. Why? Well, again, it's because the people forgot their God. That's why. So, so the picture of Jerusalem then in its judgment is a picture of congregations all the way through history when they reject God. And the enemy at the gates is not a man with a sword. It is the drifting away of their children to other gods and, and, and to other places to, to no longer come to the church. And this also you can apply the same thing. The reflection does apply to your family, your, your actual family. When the family is faithful, when the word of God is the center of life and prayer, what you have is a family that passes it forward to the next generation. When there are other things, other gods that are more important, you kind of mix it together. You have some of this and some of that. What you find is the next generation starts to drift. And, and maybe you got one kid still goes to church, but not all of them do. And so this judgment idea here it has lots of application, lots of ramification to our country, to our congregation, to our church body, to our families. And the point of the judgment preaching is not for you to go, woe is me, oh, it's so bad, what can I do? The point is for you to go, Jesus, have mercy on us. Knowing that when you say that, that that's the whole point. The reason he's withdrawn his hand is because you're not saying that. And so as soon as you begin to ask him to be the guide, to be the leader, to be your God, he is. And so for us then, at this Advent season, beginning Judgment Day, it's, it's a nice, flavorful moment here. Before we get to Christmas and celebrate what we know to be true about the Christ child, we must remember why he had to come. And that was so that the judgment could be forgiven us. Yeah. All right, so we're going to have some pretty heady stuff here as he talks about everything that is wrong with Judah and Jerusalem. I'm not always going to go through government, family, congregation, church body every time with application. I may hit one or the other as we go, but I want you to just kind of keep in your mind it applies to all of them. You can see this impacting all of them. All right, chapter 3, verse 1 says, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply. Okay? So they're a country and a church, and he's done making it easy for them. It's that simple. Support and supply. And look, he means food. All support of bread and all support of water. So he's going to send upon this country, not the U.S. necessarily, although maybe us too, he's going to send upon Judah huh, a hard time. A great depression, a time of struggle and suffering, and now follows a list of people, all of whom should be important and good, all of whom are part of the support and the supply, the way that the economy works. He's going to basically take away their ability to do their job. So he mentions in verse 2, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, 
the captain of 50 and the men of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician, and the expert in charms, right? Everybody who they were trusting in, the leaders who had power, the warriors who could protect, and did you catch the magicians, the sorcerers, the false teachers, the false prophets who were telling them that if they would follow these rules, life would be great, but they'd forgotten the rules, the word of God. He's gonna take all of that away. The thing in which they trusted for safety, that's what he was going to destroy. Okay, so, so here's, here's kind of where you can, as a Christian right now, like lean on this a little bit. If you think that by voting, we're gonna fix our country, then God's gonna take that away. Doesn't mean you won't be able to vote, but he's gonna take away the ability to fix the country by voting. If you think you can stop God's judgment against America by anything you do, the thing you rely on is where it's gonna fail the most. I'm not saying don't vote, I'm not saying don't politic, I'm saying before you do, see where the king sits. And go to the king with your vote, not to the box. Ask Jesus to have mercy upon our country. Now again, you can apply that to many things. Wherever you're going to put your resting security against God, God's going to tear that down. That's the, that's, the, that's the wisdom to see here. And so what should you do? Well, don't put your security anywhere but God. I mean, it's really quite simple. Trust in Jesus more than anyone else. Right? Your bank account, right? the military, whatever, you pick. Trust in Jesus. Uh, the curse continues now. He's cursing them. Verse 4, I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. You see this take place uh, in Judah, also in Israel, a number of times where uh, God does punish a king by killing him, and the son who sits on his throne is like 12. And I, I, you think what you want about either of the last two guys to sit in the Oval Office. Try putting a 12-year-old in there. See how that one goes, right? It's not a good thing when your king is 12. If he's got good advisors, maybe it's okay, but you know, it's, it's, it's kind of rough. But so that did happen as punishment against them. But also in this curse is the idea that the men who would sit in the king's throne, in the office, they would be as good as somebody who's 12. They'd be as uh, radical or uh, wanton or, or needy or pushy or immature. They're infantile in their thinking. That also is a punishment upon people. That what they want matters more than what is good for the people. Yeah? Think about that with an infant. I know we like to think of infants as cute, cuddly little balls of love. And, and they can be sometimes. But what an infant is, more than anything else, is purely selfish. Entirely, completely, nothing but selfish. I want, I want, I want. And as soon as they can say it, they do. I want, I want, I want. No. That's about their language right there, right? So that is not good in a leader. It's not good in a pastor. It's not good in a father. Right? And when God curses a people, that, that's what happens in those offices. They become like that. And so, verse 5, the result, the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow, and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder, and the despised to the honorable. Yeah? 
I mean, that youth hating his elder, youth culture in our country is very much about that. If you're old, you're stupid. You're not cool, you're not hip. We've been doing that for two generations. How's it going? How's it work to make the elderly not wise and claim that we know more just because we have, what, phones? Okay, yeah. Uh, and the people oppressing everyone, his neighbor, is that not exactly what you see? Get what you can while you can. Don't let anyone put one over on you. All right, you're back to the politicking. Why is everybody voting for what they want? Because they want what they want out of it. It's not altruistic. It's not for the good of all that we're, we're thinking here. We're thinking about ourselves, yeah? Such a time, verse six, a man, this is an amazing section. A man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father saying, you have a cloak, you shall be our leader. And this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. So, so basically what he says is, uh, there's nobody to follow. We can't trust anyone, but you still have clean clothes. That must mean you know more than the rest of us. Will you please be our leader? Verse 7, in that day he will say, I will not be a healer. In my house, there is neither bread nor cloak, right? So, okay, so I've got one nice cloak. I got no more and I got no food. You shall not make me leader of the people. Now, again, imagine, in one sense, we don't live in such a time. We're nowhere near this. Where someone would say, like, please, somebody be president. And everyone would be like, no, 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 not me. I don't want that job. Too dangerous. And we're not there yet. Yeah. Although, I do feel sometimes we are there. When it comes to finding good men to follow, you've got to kind of cast about to find them. Where are they? Who can you trust? Yeah, it's fair enough. And the punishment then, the curse is, when the floor falls out from under the society, there are no good men. There's no good men. That's, that's the point. Because, verse 8, Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against Jesus defying his glorious presence. So, if I might apply the wrath of God to the American church, let me suggest to you that for all of the hubbub and all of the money and all of the promises and the boasting about how we're going to figure out how to do mission, and we're going to convert all sorts of people and fill up the churches of God, for the last 200 years, since that movement called revivalism came about, we've done nothing but slow decline. Less and less and less. What is the right response to one generation, two generations, five generations of decline? To going from a place when there was a church on every corner and they were all full, to now when the churches on every corner can't be kept open at all and each one has 12 to 15 people in it. What is the right response and the response needs to be to say, we must be against God. I don't think I'm against God. I don't say I'm against God, but obviously God's against me. And so if I'm going to have God be on my side, where do I start? I stop by, start by repenting. I don't say I'm going to bring in this executive and we're going to do this program and we're going to get it all going together, roll up the sleeves and make it happen. You're just fighting God. He's just going to crush the thing you put your trust in. Instead, be still and remember who he is and let your lips utter, Jesus have mercy, Christ have mercy, Jesus have mercy. 
Open up the Psalter. Read it out loud in Jesus' name and learn to mean what it says. I'm fully convinced that one of the primary things, I mean, there's a lot of reasons churches have collapsed in America, but I'm fully convinced one of the primary reasons is we don't pray against our enemies anymore. We don't. We've been taught not to. It's mean. How can I pray against my enemy? I'm a sinner too. Well, there's whole psalms about how you can do it and why you should. They're not even in our hymnal. How'd that happen? Oh, well, we wouldn't use them in church if we had them there. Huh. So the book written to be the prayers of the church, we took the prayers out because we wouldn't use them, and we wonder why our pews are not as full as they should be. Yeah? It's right there, what I just read a moment ago. Their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. And we'll do it better. We know more than God. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Verse 9, for the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. The point is pride. They're not ashamed. And, and have you noticed, by the way, with all the chaos that's out there in our world today, we can talk about digital currencies and we can talk about the World Economic Forum, blah, 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 blah. The, the, the marriage issue, the sexuality issue, the changing children into things by surgeries issue, all of it centers around something called pride. They don't even hide it. They boast in their shame. The look on their faces bears witness against them, just like Sodom. They don't hide it. Next line. Woe to them. For they have brought evil on themselves. Verse 10 is helpful for you and me. Tell the righteous it shall be well with them. So as you see the woe, coming upon the wicked. Remember, you're the righteous. So, so let me kind of do the Lutheran thing here for a second. You're a sinner, and you've been made righteous by Jesus. The righteousness that you have is Jesus only, but he gave it to you. And so when God sees you, he doesn't see a sinner. He sees the righteous. Righteous by faith. Born again to trust that God is for you and not against you. That means in the Old Testament, when you see the phrase, the righteous, that's you. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done for you. So tell the righteous it shall be well with them. Now it does say, they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Well, when you are righteous by faith in Jesus Christ, when you believe that Jesus died and rose again, he is risen. Hallelujah. When you believe that Jesus died and rose again, you tend to start believing everything else he said too. Like, do this, don't do that. One of my favorite lines from him, wisdom is justified by her children. Wisdom is justified by her children. You know what that means? That the fruit of what you do is going to be what it is. If you sow bad seed, you're going to get bad fruit. If you sow good seed, you're going to get good fruit. So you righteous Christians, build your house on the rock, not on the sand. And guess what? The storm will come, the wind will blow, and the house will, will stand. And that's what it means by eating the fruit of your deeds. It's not about saving yourself. It's about knowing that you're righteous in Jesus. And so keep following Jesus and it will be well for you. Yeah. Would that more of Christianity just said that once in a while. Yeah. Now, again, though, we're in the middle of the judgment. Woe to the wicked, verse 11. It shall be ill with them. You're not the wicked. 
When you read the Old Testament, you're not the wicked. Are you a sinner? Yes. Are you evil by nature? Yes. Are you fallen? Yes. Do you need to be forgiven? Yes. But you are not the wicked. How can I say that? Because the wicked don't believe. You believe. So you can't be the wicked. The wicked sets himself against God with pride of his face, saying, I boast in my shame and God is wrong. Well, that's not what you are. It's not what any Christian is. Yeah? So just know then, for those who are saying that, there is no God. How could there be a God? Such a stupid idea. That person, woe to you, shall be ill with you. For what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. Full repayment of all of his selfish deeds. And so verse 12, same idea from just a moment ago. My people, infants are their oppressors, right? They're, they're ruled by immaturity. And then don't miss this rather bold line. Well, it's not bold for Isaiah. It's bold in our day. Uh, women rule over them. There's been uh, no short amount of debate in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, over the last 50 or 60 years about what you might call the role of women. And I don't know what your previous pastor here at St. Paul shared with you or didn't share with you, but there was a big decision that we kind of made together uh, back in uh, like 1985, 1987, and it was that women could be presidents of the congregation. And then sometime in the early 2000s, we decided, well, they can be elders, too. And why don't we just have them distribute communion as well while they're at it? And then finally, so they say, oh, acolytes, women can be acolytes. They're the tail end of the dog. Yeah. Now, the thing to see in this text is that means God was cursing us. When we voted to have the women rule, we voted to be cursed by God. Not because women are stupid. You're not stupid but because you're not men. And when the women rule, guess what it means the men have to be? Cowards. Cowards. I tell you, if there's a war right over there, an army coming, and I push my wife out, say, you go first, I hope all of you are going to say, what kind of coward is that? So why is it any different in the public life of the church? Much less the public life of the world. Now, am I saying that you can't vote for a woman congressman? No. You're going to have to decide between varieties of imperfection throughout life. Just don't miss the fact that the, the, the great hope that the, well, can I, can I betray myself? The great hope of the Republican Party and all of these lady congressmen who are concurrent congresswomen that are coming in, the great hope that all the women will save us? I hope they vote well for us. I'm not against that at all. I think they can be wise and make good decisions. But I'm not going to put my hope in a time in which the men are hiding more and more. Yeah? The women rule over them. It's a curse. It's very clearly a curse. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you. Rest of the verse. And they have swallowed up the course of your paths. Right? So, well, your guides, who are they? Well, it's not just your, your kings and your politicians. It's your pastors, too. Right? The priests, the Levites. The teachers, how did they mislead you? They said, well, you came to them with a question. Does the Bible say we can do this? And he said, oh, sure, yeah, go ahead and do it. No problem, won't be a big deal. I know the Bible says this about man and woman, but don't worry about it, it's not that big a deal. In the 60s and 70s, that just meant divorce. 
And eventually that just meant something like, well, again, they can be chairman of the congregation. But look where it is now. If you can't see that what's being done to children with the surgeries and the hormone treatments is on the same train, then there's no help in it. And where we need to go is to repent of the entire thing, which is not to say, let's fix it. No, it's to say, what does the Bible say? Let's figure out what it says. Let's believe it. That's where we want to go. That's where we want to go. And the guide, the faithful teacher, is the one who's going to say that to you. And I pray I am such a man. Although I got flesh too. Right? Keep me in check. Did I say what it said or did I change it? But that's fair enough. Yeah. Now, verse 13, we heard read before. The Lord is taking his place to contend. Right? God's bringing the judgment. He stands to judge the peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. So again, we have to apply this to our nation, to our state, to our congregation, to our church body. In every place, it could be asking this question of the pastor, of the district president, of the congressman, of the mayor. Are you devouring people's houses with what you're doing? Is it just about gaining more for yourself? Or is it about the good of all? And God entering into judgment with these leaders of the land means he's going to bring upon them exactly what they have built for themselves. And so if they've sown destruction, Destruction's going to blow back on them. Yeah? Now, the vineyard idea is pretty important. We're going to come back to that next week. All of chapter 5 is about the vineyard of God. And it's a picture of the church and a picture of the nation of Israel. But the idea of, of plundering the vineyard means ultimately to plunder the church. And so as much as I think we do need to repent of all the things going on in the public square and the weirdness and the pride and all that, I really do more than that think that we Lutherans in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, before we start pointing fingers at this, that, and the other thing, we'd ask ourselves, what have we been doing for the last 45 years? Why have we jettisoned our worship style in so many of our congregations? What are we after? What do we believe? Who are we? Why are we here? Why should anyone be a Lutheran? What makes us better? What makes us different? Is there a reason or is it just because we've always done it that way and this is our building? As much as you might say no to that last thing, I'll tell you, the most majority of the, the church body has said yes to just that. I'm a Lutheran because I was born one and this is my building. So don't you dare actually preach the Bible because, well, that's not what we've done here before. And I've heard that not only directly to myself, but I know it still is said to others. And when I say directly, I don't mean by you. I've been in a few places, though. Um, so, uh, the Lord is contending against the leaders who don't point back to the scriptures, which teach to trust the true God, who establishes the fruitfulness of the church. Yeah? And now, uh, he does use ladies again, although they're not really ladies at this point, as an example of the pride. And this is going to be kind of intense, so buckle in for this here. Uh, the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, 
That part's easy. They just are haughty. They're proud. And walk with outstretched necks. See, the outstretched neck is the kind of the, I'm better than you. Right? I, no one can touch me idea. They walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes. So as their neck is up, they're looking to the side. They're looking down on everybody. And there's a little bit of a adulterous mindset there going on. Mincing as they go, tinkling with their feet. That's a strange little line, isn't it? Uh, so he's going to talk more about the kind of dress that women in Jerusalem were wearing at this time as he talks about taking it all away. So this idea is going to come back. Um, but let's just say that their efforts to be beautiful were not unlike our efforts to be beautiful, but they were definitely different. So, so one thing they did not have was stiletto heels. Yeah? No stiletto heels in ancient Israel. Uh, bear with me, this is a little rough. What's the purpose of a stiletto heel? Is to draw the eye to the, to the leg. That's what it's for. It makes the leg look attractive. That's what it's for. Right? And it also sends a message. I can't defend myself right now. You try running in stiletto heels, you know, you can't defend yourself right then. You need to be defended. It's asking for a man. It's a message to ask for a man by boasting of weakness. Very interesting if you think about it that way. Now again, no stiletto heels in ancient Israel, but the tinkling as they go is the same idea. What they did was they wore golden chains around each ankle with a single chain between them so you could only walk a small step forward, and they put bells underneath, so it would tinkle, 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 tinkle every time you stepped. Same idea, right? And again, uh, mincing as they go, there's a pride involved in this. We're safe, we're secure, we're wealthy, and we're in charge. Therefore, verse 17, the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion. Okay, so ladies, your hair falls out and is covered in scabs. Not the ideal morning, right? That's the punishment, though. What you are boasting in, what you think is so great, he's going to take it away, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. That means exactly what it sounds like. I'm not going to explain it for you. You know. In that day, now here's more of this. He's going to take it all away. He will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, this would be something that would cover the head a little bit and hold the hair up. Uh, the crescents, these were um, like a crescent moon, gold and silver on chains that would be worn down uh, to draw attention to the, the bosom, okay? That's what those are. Um, you, might, you can really imagine this kind of a different idea, but if you've ever seen pictures of like Arabic camels, they've got these like long hanging chains with all these stars and crescents on them that are off the front. That's it, only the girls are wearing them, right? And they're hanging down low to draw attention. Uh, the pendants, the bracelets and scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, the amulets, the signet rings, the nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. Uh, there's subtle things there within those. Some of those are very specialized. Let's just say, though, that all of them are prostitutional dress, ultimately. The idea is he's going to stop you from thinking that your beauty is what life is about, the haughtiness and the pride. And remember, this isn't just about the ladies in Jerusalem. This is about the whole people. 
That the whole people are playing the harlot. The whole people think that they're safe without their God. The whole people have turned their backs on Jesus. And so he's going to take away everything that they think makes them beautiful. And verse 24, instead of perfume, there'll be a rotten stench. Instead of a belt, a rope. Now by rope, think like a, a, a nasty rope you'd use on a boat or something like that, as opposed to your nice belt of leather you just got from Macy's, right? And it's going to take that away. You've got a belt of rope around your waist. Instead of well-set hair, again, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. When nations like Asher, Assyria of old, when they conquered a peoples and they made you slaves, they didn't just take you away in cars, let alone on donkeys. They took you away bound at the wrist or at the nose with a hook. And then they would brand your forehead with the mark slave. You try to run away like that, see how far you get right there for all to see. And that's the threat he's bringing upon Judah and Jerusalem. Branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, your mighty men in battle, and her gates shall lament and mourn empty. She shall, shall sit on the ground. It's pretty rough stuff for Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet of hope. There's going to be repentance and all of this is going to be pushed off for a couple generations. But again, it does happen eventually. Jeremiah has the same message, and then he gets to live through it and watch it happen. The book of Lamentations, we touched on that one last year. The book of Lamentations is written after the fact, as he has to sit there and look at the burned city, all the people that have been taken away, and yet, and yet, the righteous survive. Daniel, Ezekiel, taken away captive safely to Babylon, where they can establish homes, build houses, give their children in marriage, live a life underneath a foreign power. So, again, how do we apply this across the board? I, we don't have time to talk about city, government, family, church, all the way. But the point is, pride is going to be torn down. Idols going to be removed. You think you can put this between you and God's judgment? Uh-uh. Ain't going to happen. The very thing you most trust in will be the thing that is your destruction. So verse 1 of chapter 4 belongs in this same section. It's like that bit about the brother saying, Hey, man, lead us. Would you lead us, please? Same idea. Seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. Uh, the idea is you won't be able to find a husband. All the men will be dead. All the men will be dead. Uh, the, the covenant of marriage in the ancient world was a man's pledge to this woman. You come into my home, I'll feed you, I'll give you clothing, I'll take care of your kids. It's kind of the same today, although we don't really talk about it that way. But it's kind of the same idea, or it should be. It's, it's what marriage is built to be. In that day, seven women chasing one man. Why? Because all the men are gone, killed by the sword. Final part of the judgment. Now, rest of chapter 4, though, gets a little more hopeful. I told you, judgment than hope. Verse 2, in that day, the day of judgment, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. Did you catch it? Oh, I changed the page. I changed, oh, there, oh, come, O come, Emmanuel. Did you catch it this morning? Those of you who came to first service, did you catch it in the verse? O come, thou branch of Jesse's tree, free them from Satan's tyranny that trust thy mighty power to save and give them victory o'er the grave. The branch. 
The branch is an image of the Christ in the book of Isaiah. And just like that banner over there shows you the stump of a tree that's been lopped off. That's the house of David, right? So coming up from that stump, a new shoot, a new branch that will become the tree under which all the world can rest. That is the prophecy of the Messiah, whom is our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, and think also not only about him being born of the house of David, think about him being dead in the tomb, the stump cut off, and yet he comes forth on the other side, new life that shall never die. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. The judgment of God always comes in order to bring salvation. I'm going to say that again. It's the most important thing I'm going to say this morning. The judgment of God always comes to bring salvation. When he curses, is to drive away the wicked so that you, the righteous, can see God for who he really is. So when he destroys Jerusalem, is to rebuild it. When he takes the people captivity, is to send them back to the land so that Jesus can come and be who he is. And to, backing way, way up, when he lets us fall into sin and keeps us chained in the sin of Adam, it's so that he can enter that sinful condition and save us from it as our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. So in him, the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Notice pride is back. But it's not pride in your shame. It's pride in Jesus himself. Paul says it this way, I will not boast in anything except in the cross of Jesus Christ our Lord. The honor that is yours is the honor of being declared sons of God. You can boast about that. It's funny how they make you feel ashamed about it now. It's hard to say Jesus is Lord out in the public square right now. They make you feel bad about it, yeah? But that's the exact opposite of who we are in Christ. We are those who have our great pride being. We're declared sons of God. We're going to live forever. And we're going to judge the angels and the wicked. We're going to stand beside the thrones and worship God, cast our crowns down before him. Yeah? Pride and honor for you who survive. And, and see that survivor is you. That's you. You're the believer in Christ. You're in the ark going across the raging flood of death in the body of Jesus. Now see that as you in verse 2. Verse 3, he who is left in Zion. That's you. It's got to be you. You're a Christian. That's what this is about. It's, it's not about Jerusalem. It is, but it's not. It's about Christianity. And those who survived in Jerusalem physically survived so that their faith might survive. So they might be witnesses and examples to us of we who must live through various times. Various times. You don't get to choose when you live. But you're going to live through various times as Christians being those who survive. Yeah? He who is left in Zion remains in, and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. That's what you are. Set apart. Yeah? Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. That's having your name written in the book of life. Yeah? Beautiful imagery from the book of Revelation on that. Verse 4, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth. Notice the word washing. It's not the word baptism in Hebrew, that's for sure. Yeah? But what is baptism but a, a lavish washing of regeneration? They've washed away the filth from the daughters of Zion. And cleanse the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its mist by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. A day of deep darkness as Jesus hangs on the cross. God's spirit judging all of us there in him. When that happened, as that has happened, so now you are holy, so now you are clean. So now that is a free gift to all people. And the only ones who get pure judgment from this point forward are those who don't want the salvation. 
Verse 5 is going to be about what the salvation looks like using Old Testament language to create a picture. It says, Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over all her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flame of fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and shelter from the storm and the rain. Now, in the life of the world to come, there's not going to be storms. Uh, there's not going to be a need to be hidden from the heat. So don't get too literal with this. Uh, but what it is doing is making a picture about what life with God is like. And it plays on the Exodus account where the people of God had God with them as a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud who went before them, who fought against their enemies, who protected them from all things. And yet he was always over there or over there down on the tent of meaning. In that day that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father, this says now he's not going to be over there or over there, but the fiery cloud will be a covering. So that no matter which direction you look, you see the, the providential blessing of God defending you, supporting you, sustaining you, hiding you from the heat, giving you light to be able to see. And indeed, this is not something we're waiting for. This is what you have already. He is with you. The only question is, do you believe it? Right? In a moment when you say, why, God, why? The only problem is you don't believe because I have a good reason. He always has a good reason. The issue is not whether or not he's with you. The issue is, do you believe it? Again, so by training and discipline to teach yourself to say the words of God out loud so that you can tell yourself in such a moment, Alleluia, God meant it for good. Now, this is the discipline we want to recover yeah, and cling to as a people. Uh, with just a few moments left then, that's the end of the chapter. We'll look at chapter 5 next week. Would you turn to page 948, all the way forward to that Romans text we heard read a little while ago? Because I think, I think it's a nice summary conclusion here for us, yeah? Romans chapter 13, uh, verse 11, where Paul, uh, we just looked at this a couple, of, a couple of months ago, where Paul at the end of his treatise on you being justified by the work of Jesus for the sake of your faith, he says to them and to us, besides this, you know the time. That by itself is worth, worth pondering on. You know the time. It has nothing to do with the United States of America. It has everything to do with living on earth. You know that this age is going to end. You know that this age is filled with wicked men and demons. You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Stop living like everything's okay here. Stop thinking you're going to make everything okay here. Start looking for the life of the world that is to come then. For that salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. That's a nice phrase that always works, right? Like, like 10 seconds from now, it's closer than it was 10 seconds ago. It, it always works. Salvation is always closer. So then all the more reason to wake up. The night is far gone, he says. The day is at hand. And yes, Jesus has tarried. He has tarried 2,000 years since Paul wrote this, and yet also the judgment has come to each man and woman who has died in that time. 
Your death's never that far away. Oh, I'm young. It's 65 years away. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. The sudden adult, adult death syndrome's a thing. That's, that's for sure. But even without that, you don't know. So again, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. It is always time to walk as one who is awake, knowing this life's going to pass. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. You could do a lot with that, but let's just say, how about we try to be a people who believe what the Bible says? Let's do that on purpose. Let's learn to hunger for it. I know that when you're like, I mean, I, 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 at night, I always take my Bible to bed beside me at night, and I'm like, maybe tonight I'll read it a little more. Oh, I'm too tired. So I, I get it. I get that feeling. I have it too. But that's not a reason to stop like taking the Bible and putting it there to make myself think, ah, oh, maybe I should. Most people say they don't have time to read the Bible. They got time to do a whole lot of other stuff. Wake up. Wake up. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. And now he's going to definitely talk about staying away from those who do all those immoral sexual things, who are uh, proud of their wickedness. Definitely says, don't do that. Don't do that. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 14, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Make no provision for the flesh. That, that's where I want to close this here. Okay? Now, don't get me wrong. You're saved. There's nothing you're going to do to make yourself more saved. It's because you're saved. It's because God is gracious that you want to hear this. Your flesh is the old human who still lives in you who thinks that what you want matters. And whenever what you want isn't what you get, it whines and complains and throws a fit like a baby. And Paul is saying to you, don't listen. Start listening to hear it and then fight back. Tell it no. Have some some chutzpah, some, some grit. Huh? Make no provision. And when you find yourself saying, well, if I don't have this, I won't be happy, that's the time to say, you know what, maybe I'm going to try to get without that for a while. See what happens. Huh? You apply that where you will. But what I want us to do as a people is not be people who are ruled by what we want. The next time you're in an argument with anybody, think about it. Is this about what I want? Why is what I want right? Is it just because I want it? Now, maybe what you want is right, and it is right. You need to stand firm. That's fine. There's a place for that, too. But let's all remember that it's better. It is better to give than to receive. It's better to suffer than to take vengeance. Yeah? And in this way, make, make no provision for the flesh. Stand firm. Stand firm under the grace of Jesus. Uh, I, I don't want to end on that. Tell the righteous it will be well with them. It will be well with you in the name of Jesus.